Good morning. When I was in, thank you, when I was in high school, uh, I had a 1988 navy blue manual Volkswagen Jetta. Yeah, it wasn't that impressive. I feel like it was, in retrospect, it was like one step above the Flintstone mobile. It was, it was, I don't think there was power anything in that car, but I loved it. It was my car, and one Christmas Eve, uh, I was going to go meet with my small group at this coffee shop uh, before, you know, Christmas break hit, and it, it was snowing. And as I was a teenager, and so my attitude, as it was with most things at that time, was like, Mom and Dad, <laughs> I got this. I got this. And they're thinking, like, just, you know, be safe. I was like, please, I got this. And as I started driving to the coffee shop, you know, I'm like saying, I'm watching people spin out or slide off the road. I'm like, those people don't know what they're doing. I got this. So I go to the coffee shop and I'm driving home afterwards and I'm coming up to a stoplight and I'm not an idiot. So I down, start to downshift because I don't want to slam on the brakes. And so I I'm only going like 20, 25 miles an hour because it was snowing pretty heavy. But I got to the point where I needed to hit the brakes and my brakes locked up and I start just about to slide through the intersection. Now, thankfully, it's snowing. There aren't a lot of people out. And I was, like I said, going like 20 miles an hour. So it was the slowest slide through an intersection like ever. Like a car pulled up and I'm like waving at them like, sorry. (laughs) Sorry about that. Nothing I can do right now. Sorry about that. Because I felt like, I, you know, I got it. Like, I got it. That's my attitude towards stuff. And sometimes that's your attitude as well to different things, to different parts of life. It's like, I got this. I know what I'm doing. I got this. And maybe for some of us at different times, it's like, man, I don't know what I'm doing. And you're the kind of person that if you see snow on the forecast, you won't leave your house for the next two weeks. Because you're so afraid. Oh, I, don't, I have no idea what I'm doing. We waver between these two attitudes sometimes, right? Like, I have no idea at all. I am so bad at that. Or, like, I am so good. Let's just let the world see my skills. As we continue our series, Welcome to God, this morning, we're going to look at a different question. The question, how do I know Jesus? And the way Jesus interacted with these very ideas. We're going to dive into Luke chapter 7 in a couple minutes, but first I want to start with, if we're going to talk about how do I know Jesus, we probably need to talk a little bit about who is Jesus. Jesus is God's answer to a very, very big problem, the problem of sin. Jesus, as as Paul says in Ephesians, is the mysteries of God revealed, the fulfillment of God's plan before time to redeem people to himself, to rescue us. That sin entered the world when humans entered the world. This idea of we fall short of the, God, of the standard God had set for us, the standard that God had met. We fall short of that. And the problem with that is we're separated from him. But God loves people and he's not okay with that. And so he said, I have a plan. Jesus is the fulfillment of that plan. To rescue people back to himself. What Jesus brings is salvation. And that's a big word. It means a lot of different things in in culture, but specifically what it means for us in a biblical context is to save or to rescue or to, to deliver or to set free, to rescue us from our brokenness, to rescue us from our baggage, our fallenness, to rescue us from our inability to successfully do life, to successfully make ourselves right with God on our own. Salvation affects the, the physical and the emotional and the spiritual aspects of our life. It affects the whole person. The emotional, because it changes the way we live. We can't help but live differently. It changes the emotional, because it's freedom from guilt and from shame and from the things that weigh on our souls. 
And it's spiritual in that it brings us into a, a right and a richly satisfying relationship with God. So who is this Jesus that brings us salvation and how do we experience that? We're going to look at this story in Luke chapter 7. And we're going to see three different aspects of Jesus. Three, three ways that Jesus fills this need for us. So we see this story, and it starts in verse 36, if you're following along, that it says a Pharisee, who is a religious leader of the day, invites Jesus to have dinner with him. And so Jesus goes to his house, and he sits down to eat. And this wasn't a private one-on-one -on -one dinner. There were other people there. And what happened is these kind of dinner, it was like, almost like a banquet, like a public banquet of, of influential people. And the poor were allowed to be around these things. They could get access to influential people at these types of gatherings, because frankly, it was a way for the poor to go and watch the life they wish they had. And so Jesus is at this gathering, and it says, a certain immoral woman came from the city, heard he was eating there, and showed up. And just first, we want to say, that's not a good way to be known. You don't want to be the immoral person. Nobody wants that in the yearbook. Like, loosest morals. Like with that picture, like nobody wants that. Like that's not, you want like best dress or nobody wants most immoral. So already it's like, yikes, this, this is not great for this woman. It says she shows up there and what we know about her description culture is that she was probably a prostitute. She'd either been sold into sexual slavery as a child or she availed herself of one of the few ways that a woman at this time who had no family, had no connections could possibly make money. And so she is known as this prostitute and is seen as unclean and people don't even want her around. These guys, this Pharisee is not excited that she shows up. So she shows up and, and it says she brought this beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And that was probably a little jar with a long neck. And the way you got access to the perfume, this is expensive and it's rare, is you'd have to break it. You'd have to break it to get access to the perfume. So you couldn't put a stopper back into it. Like when you used it, you used it like it was done. So this is a very precious commodity. And she brings this and says, she knelt behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. She kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. It's a powerful picture. Not the least of reasons why is because feet are disgusting. Feet are, are gross. And if you're a podiatrist, and I talked with one of the first service, I greatly respect your chosen profession. It's just not for me. Like, I, I'm not, I do not enjoy feet. Like, it's, I'm, if you've seen me wearing flip-flops, you saw me in the shower in college, and I want to know, where did you get a time machine? And stop watching me in the shower, that's creepy. If you want to wear flip-flops, that's totally up to you. Just that is not my, I'm just, I don't enjoy feet. And at this time, you're wearing sandals everywhere you go. Your feet are gross. It's dirty. It's dusty. Your feet are disgusting. Who knows what you stepped in? You think that was mud? That was not mud. Her feet are likely gross. And it says she's weeping on his feet and wiping them with her hair and putting perfume on them. And the Pharisee who sees this who had invited him in, he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, if this man were someone God spoke to, if this man were someone God used, he would know the kind of woman that's touching him. She's a sinner. I think we see that the Pharisee was open to experiencing Jesus. He was curious. But when he sees this, he goes, no, he can't be because a prophet would never interact with this kind of woman. But Jesus answered him and he answers his thoughts. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, go ahead, teacher. And I think it's like, Simon, buddy, 
Big mistake. Big mistake. Jesus is like walking you into this. Uh, that's where you got to go, ooh, I, like the, the wheel should start turning. You go, this, this may not turn out well for me here. But Simon walks into it. Go ahead, teacher. And Jesus tells him a story. He says, a man loaned two people money, 500 pieces of silver and the other 50 pieces of silver. Neither of them could repay, and so he kindly forgave the debt of both of them, canceling the debts. Who do you suppose loves him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And I think he's throwing suppose in there because he's like, no, I'm not giving you the satisfaction. Uh, I suppose it was the one who had a bigger debt. And Jesus says, that's right. And he turns to the woman and says to Simon, see the woman kneeling here. When I entered into your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she washed them with her tears and wiped them with their hair. And culturally speaking at this time, hospitality is a gigantic deal. It's a gig- You could disrespect your entire town if you didn't show proper hospitality to strangers. And so this is a big deal. He didn't offer him water to clean his feet. And then he says, you didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head. Think like first century deodorant kind of thing. Febreze, if you will. But she has anointed me with rare perfume. He says, I tell you, and her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only a little love. And then Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Three things that we want to look about that are true about Jesus with this story, all right? And the first thing we see in this story is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And what that means is Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's not half God and half man. He's fully, completely God, and he's fully, completely man. He's God who stepped into time. He's God who put on flesh to walk amongst us. And he needs to be both of those things. Because if Jesus isn't fully human then he can't have lived the life we were supposed to live. He can't have paid a sacrifice on our behalf. He wouldn't know what it was like for, uh, for us, for our experience. But if he wasn't fully God, he couldn't have lived the perfect life to make that sacrifice worth it. Fully God and fully man. And we see that idea in this story, in verses 39 and 40. I love this. Since the Pharisee who had invited him saw what, you know, Jesus' response, he said to himself, said to himself, said to himself, inside, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus answered his thoughts. Oh my goodness. That is terrifying. Like at, the, at that point, that's where I would go, okay, this, okay, this is not going to end well for me. Because he thinks to himself, oh, this guy can't be a prophet. And Jesus says, hey, uh, it's about that prophet thing you're thinking, uh, can I offer you a thought on that? He knows what's going on inside of him. I mean, that's incredible. He knew the man's thoughts. Jesus has access to all this power because he is the son of God. He's not a random guy. He's not even... A good, just a good teacher. He's not even a prophet. I love that Simon won't give Jesus, he's like, well, I can't be a prophet because he doesn't know the woman. And, and Jesus goes, all right, I'll see your prophet and I'll raise you the divine son of God. He knows what's going on inside. 
And that sets up the second thing that Jesus is, that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Son of God, and he's the Savior. And what's a Savior? Savior is the one who's come to rescue. And we see that picture when it says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. Now, what's powerful is Jesus doesn't rationalize them away or say, because she showed me favor, she's good with me, and you didn't, so you're not. Jesus said her sins, and they are many. He acknowledges that, there's a lot, that she's done a lot of stuff, that she's got a past, that she's got baggage, that there is a history, that there is stuff in her life that is dirty and messy and broken and not okay, and there is failure, that that is true of who she is. He doesn't whitewash. He goes, that is true. Her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. They've been forgiven. He turns to her, looks to her after that, and says, your sins are forgiven. Not because of what she did in this moment. Not because she came and wept on his feet and washed them away. That action was a response to what had already happened because he points to it at the end saying, your faith has saved you. He forgives sins. I mean, it blows the minds of the religious leaders that are there. They even say at the end, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? Only the Son of God can do that. Only the Savior who God has sent into the world to rescue his people can possibly do that. And what I love is that Jesus came to save the unrighteous. Jesus came to save the sinners, the unworthy. He comes and interacts with this woman who is selling herself to make ends meet, who is known as an immoral woman. He's come to save her. He's come to say, I don't care about your past because I'm bigger than that. I don't care about your, your history. I don't care about your failure. I don't care about what you've done. I'm bigger than that. My love is bigger than that. God's forgiveness is bigger than that. He comes and engages with this woman who's at the fringes of society, who the other people at this party don't even want to be there. He has come to save the unrighteous. But he's also come to save the self-righteous. He didn't just come for the woman. He came for Simon too. He came for Simon who thinks he's fine. He thinks he's got it together. He's like, I'm, I'm good at this. I got this. That attitude of, no, 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 no. I know what I'm doing. Like that guy who's driving down the, the, the street with a mattress on top and they're holding it with their arm. Like, I can do this. I can do this. That attitude, this, that foolish attitude of I can somehow find good and joy in my life apart from God. I don't need God. I don't need you, God. That's really what sin is, is us saying, God, I don't need you to find meaning or joy or happiness. He's come for Simon too. Simon who labels her a sinner and by doing so seems to absolve himself of any of those actions. Simon who's deluded himself into thinking that he is good enough on his own, Jesus has come for him too. Jesus shows us, the Savior shows us that our worst is not bad enough to keep us from him and our good is not good enough to bring us to him. He moved towards us that we all might be rescued. Lastly, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the perfect shepherd. Because what I love about this story is he engages with two very different people at two very different places in society and two very different places in the religious spectrum. He engages with them each and he engages with them differently at where they are. This woman is so overwhelmed by what has been done for her that Jesus allows her to weep and, and wash his feet with her hair because that's her way of saying thank you. A, a sliver of 
a, a, a tiny of a picture of what God has done for her. She said, this is all I know how to do. And yet he's willing to engage with Simon who sits in his own self-righteousness going, I don't need that. He meets them both where they are. He cares about them both. And that's what a shepherd does. A shepherd cares for, a shepherd protects, a shepherd looks out for. Salvation is what we desperately need to be rescued from the mess we make of life. But what I love is that we're not just saved from something, though we certainly are. We're saved from an eternity separated from God and hell. We're, we're saved from the pain and the hurt and the guilt and the shame we carry with us. We're saved from those things. But we're not just saved from something. We're also saved to something. Jesus comes to say, I don't want you to just be free from that stuff. I want you to know a richer life than you can possibly imagine. I want to walk with you and care for you and shepherd you and show you what that's like. I want to meet you in the brokenness in your life. I want to walk with you and I want to move you in the direction of life. Cultural Christianity. That I go to church on Sunday, I check the box, I, I, I occasionally give money, like I, I, I'm a Christian, you know, just because I'm doing this stuff. That lives in the gap between we're saved from and we're saved to. There must be more than salvation, than knowing God is just being eternal fire insurance. We're not just saved from something, we're saved to something. And what else I love about this idea is we're not just saved once, we're saved continually. I don't need rescuing once. I need rescuing continually. I continually get myself in trouble. I continually need to be pulled out of it. When I gave my life to Jesus, I didn't suddenly figure everything out in an instant. I didn't suddenly become perfect. I'm still the same flawed person, and so I need to be rescued daily. I need to be reminded that God loves me and moves in my life, and that salvation daily saves me. It continually saves me. And now, that doesn't mean that you need to get saved every day. It doesn't mean you need to pray a prayer every day. That, that's not what it means. It means we can be saved every day. That we can live in the freedom that's been won for us through Jesus. As we've been rescued, we can live in that rescue. That every day I can look forward to the hope that God is working in me and changing in me and making me different. I can look forward to that. That's the hope. And that's what Jesus has come to offer. And so if that's who Jesus is, then how do I know him? How do I know him? Well, who are you in this story? Are you the woman? Are you so aware of your failures, of your brokenness? Are you saying, if you only knew what I've done, if you only knew my past, if you only knew the things I've said and the ways I've hurt people, if you only knew, you wouldn't even want me to be in the building, let alone tell me that some God loves me. If you can't possibly imagine loving yourself, then the idea of being loved by perfectly by the God of the universe can seem like it's a million miles away. Are you the woman? Or are you the Pharisee? That's me when I think about this. That's me. 
It's so easy for me to move into self-righteousness. It's so easy for me to move into, I, I, I got this. Maybe not everything. I wouldn't say I'm perfect, but it's like, you know, I got enough and, 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 I, and God loves me because of the stuff I do. Like that must be true. Like it's so easy to slide into that. It's so easy to look with judgment on others who struggle with things we don't struggle with that I don't struggle with and go, well, I'm glad that's not me. It's so easy to slide into that role and believe in some way, whether I would say those words or not, that I can save myself, I can rescue myself. It's so easy for me to believe that. Jesus came to rescue the unrighteous and the self-righteous, to rescue the woman and to rescue Simon. For followers of Jesus, we often want to see ourselves as the broken person, but we are often the Pharisee. We are often the one that is willing to go through the, the motions without really saying, how does my heart change? I love the way that Paul talks about knowing Jesus in Romans 10. He says this, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Where does it say in that that you can't have any mistakes, that you can't have any failures? Where does it say in that you have to get your life together first? Where does it say in that that you need to know everything? You need to know a lot about who God is. Where does it say there are any qualifications except a willingness to say, I need you? Salvation is saying that I am broken and I can't rescue myself, but God in his love has sent his son to do it for me. Openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he died a death on the cross to pay for our sins and God raised him back to life, then you will be saved. That's it. That's it. We surrender to God. We receive what he's done, and we know him by knowing Jesus. We surrender, we receive, and we know. I mean, that's what God wants for us. He has, he has laid it out there. We add all these hoops to it when the reality is it's that simple. God has chased us down and moved all the way towards us that we might be rescued, that we might be rescued. How do I know that I know Jesus? I mean, that's a reasonable question. All right, how do I know that I know him? One of the ways is, is there fruit in your life? And I don't mean like apples and oranges and grapes because that'd be weird and sounds like a very serious medical condition that you should see an expert on like immediately because I don't know what that is. No, it means it is... Is this faith that you're talking about being born out in your life? Do you see evidence of it? Is it? Are you being changed? Is God working in you? It's not just are you doing good stuff. It's that is your life different because of Jesus? You can't look the same. Is there fruit in your life? Because if, if you know Jesus, you can't help but respond to him. You can't help it. We can't help but be overwhelmed by it. If you owe me $5 and I forgive that debt, you don't ever think of it again, right? In fact, if I bring it up to you, you're like, dude, it's $5. Get over yourself, man, seriously. But if I forgive you a debt of $100 billion, where did I get $100 billion? I don't know. Where did, what did you do with it? How did you lose it? I don't either. Just go with me. If I forgive a debt of $100 billion to you, you name every child you have after me. Boy, girl, it doesn't matter. I get birthday cards every year, Christmas cards every year, Arbor Day cards, Columbus Day cards. You're making up holidays to send me stuff. You're putting my face on t-shirts and wearing them every day of your life. 
Too much, I went too far with the t-shirt. <laughs> that event, if I forgive you that debt, shapes the rest of your life. How could you possibly not acknowledge how significant that was? And that's what Jesus has done for us. That's the picture of salvation. What is your active response to Jesus if you have surrendered your life to him? What's your response to him? What does it look like? Because we can know. God wants us to know. This isn't cross your fingers and close your eyes and really hope that, that you can know. We see in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, it says this. I love this. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. What we're, what we're seeing there is if we know Jesus, we are good. If we have surrendered and received him, if we know him, we are good. Romans 8 says it this way, in one of my just favorite passages of scripture, Paul's talking about this, and he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Just, I want you to listen to these words. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. When we are loved, when we are in, when God receives us, we are in. We can have confidence in that, that though we change and we waver, God never does. God never does. In October, a 19-year-old woman stood trial. She was an illegal immigrant who was working as a maid and was pregnant with her second child. She'd been pregnant first at age 15. She dropped out of school in the sixth grade. And she stood trial for stealing three rings from a family's house she was cleaning. Now, when she found out how valuable the rings were, she felt bad. Because they had been valued at $5,000. In fact, two of the rings, one was uh, an engagement ring, one was a wedding ring that were uh, the woman who had them stolen. They were her grandmother's. And they were made in 1943. And when she heard how valuable they are, she told her boss... And she confessed to the police and returned the rings. And so she had to stand trial. And it's a felony. She's facing up to 20 years in prison. What's going to happen? Well, the jury meets and they begin deliberating. And they feel bad for this woman because her life has been hard. And they understand that she's young and made a mistake she made a foolish decision that will have significant consequences for the rest of her life. Spent up to 20 years in jail. I mean, her life will be forever changed by this moment. And so they don't know what to do. The foreman says, we didn't feel she should have been tried and convicted. We tried every way we could find, we tried everything we could find to find some way of not convicting her, but the legal standard was very clear. He said, we had to, to seek justice. We had to. That's the law. She confessed to it. We can't pretend like it doesn't matter. It does matter. It's, it's, it's wrong. She broke the law and she confessed to it. So what do we do? The jury met for sentencing. They wanted to show her mercy. They wanted to show her grace. They wanted to give her something she didn't deserve and not give her what she did deserve. Justice demands she pay the penalty for what she's, she's done. 
And so the jury got together and gave her the smallest fine they could give her. They said, we need to convict you, but we have, le- we have room in sentencing, and so we're going to fine you $60. And then they met as a jury and gathered money and paid her fine on her behalf. In fact, they gave her more than she needed for it. They realized that justice demands a payment. Justice demands a payment, but that they could step into her story and pay her penalty for her. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. That our sin demands a payment. It demands a price. And God steps into our story in the form of a son and pays that price for us that we might experience grace and mercy where we don't deserve it. And what I love, just, I even love the little thing that they gave her even more than her fine because that's what God does for us. He doesn't just pay our penalty. What we get in return is so richly greater than we possibly could ask or imagine. That's the hope of salvation. So what do we do with this? Well, the rest of our series, Welcome to God, we're going to spend these weeks trying to unpack this idea. What does it mean to know Jesus? What does it mean to live with him, grow with him? What does that really look like? But a couple things I can give you right now, and the first is this. More than anything else, we'd want you to know, surrender to Jesus. Experience this salvation, this freedom. Allow God to rescue you from those things that poison your soul from the inside out. Surrender, receive, and know Jesus. That's what we want you to know. Second thing is, thank him accordingly. You know, what's that mean? How do you live a life that says thank you? How do you live a life that appreciates what's been done, that makes the smallest of efforts to say, I am overwhelmed, like the woman in the story. She was so overcome by what had been done that all she could think to do was wash Jesus' feet with her tears and, and pour perfume on them. It was a small token of her incredible appreciation at being loved and forgiven. And lastly, I think there's a fair challenge for us to go, do we treat people the way Jesus would treat people? Because the Pharisee, it's the religious person in the story that looks with judgment, that says, this woman's a sinner. And in his naming her a sinner, what he's doing is saying, and I'm not. How do we look to... to, acknowledge and live in in our salvation every day to realize I am rescued today just like I need to be rescued tomorrow. I didn't suddenly figure it out. I'm not this incredible person because I reached this part of my life. I need God to work in me and rescue me and save me every day. Just ask my family. They will agree. How is Jesus challenging you to love today?